All right, church family, grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament. Luke was a doctor, you may remember, in the first century who put together this gospel account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by way of reminder, in chapter 1, Luke has made it clear to Theophilus, this man he's writing to, and then to us, why Luke is in existence, why this book is even here in the Bible. It's so that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. And today we come to something we've been taught from God's Word. It is the account of the transfiguration. So in Luke, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and today we'll be considering verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. All right, two points for our consideration of this amazing text this afternoon. First, the glorious Christ. Second, the great deliverer. The glorious Christ, the great deliverer. And I pray that as a result of our attention to this text this afternoon, God would open our eyes not only to see the truths contained here, but also how those truths should and can impact our lives. So first we see the glorious Christ. Remember last week, Jesus has asked his disciples who they think he is. And remember, Peter answered with that remarkable statement, the Christ of God. It was a huge pronouncement. Not only was Jesus a miracle worker, not only was Jesus a teacher, according to his disciples, he was the Messiah. The king promised to come in the line of David and save God's people. But if you might remember from last week as well, right after this huge, like, wow, you're the Messiah, Jesus went on to tell his disciples and anyone who would follow after him that they must suffer with him so that they might then experience glory with him. 
For Christ and for the follower of Christ, the trajectory of life is suffering, then glory. Remember, we saw that last week. And today, in the next nine verses that Luke writes, we get an in-depth look at the glory part of that trajectory. Because not only is Jesus the Messiah, not only is he the Christ, those are the same words, Hebrew and Greek, Messiah, Christ, he is the glorious Christ. So let's look in the text together. Look at verse 28. Luke picks up his story, and it's about a week later. He says, Now about eight days after these sayings, the things we saw Jesus say last week, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So we can't really be sure what mountain this is, where these four men are at this point. So last week they were on the way to Caesarea Philippi, but this mountain could be anywhere really in that region because it's eight days later. But what's Jesus doing on this particular mountain? He's praying. If you read Luke's gospel in one sitting or you just kind of pay attention to certain themes, you'll see prayer is a theme for Luke. Jesus continually takes prayer retreats to commune with his Father in heaven. And in our passage today, he takes with him his close trio of disciples. So he has the twelve, but amongst the twelve, he has the three, Peter, James, and John. They're this special trio we see throughout the Gospels, whom Jesus has given sort of backstage passes to view his power in his ministry. And this will be the best backstage pass Yet, because look at verse 29. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. So Jesus is praying and fellowshipping with his Father in heaven, and as he prays, his glory is revealed in a spectacular way. Luke says his very face is changed. In Matthew's account of this story, he says Jesus' face shone like the sun. And it's not only Jesus' face that's changed, his clothing becomes dazzling white. There's an idea in the word there of lightning. Jesus' glory is blinding in its brightness, dizzying in its splendor. I love how Mark puts it in Mark's gospel when he says Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Just a few days earlier, Jesus had prophesied that he would suffer and die. But then he said, I will come again in glory. Here's the glimpse of the glorious Christ, his face shining, his clothing pure white. This past week, I read uh, an article about the whitest paint ever. It's recently been created at Purdue University. It reflects 98% of the sun's light on the paint, so they're going to use it to kind of coat the top of buildings and refract the light and, and save AC costs. So if you go to the bomb's house and see white shingles, you'll know why. But church, that paint, as dazzling as it is, has nothing on Jesus' garments here. They're dazzlingly white. It's interesting that John, one of the disciples here on the Mount of Transfiguration, later wrote a letter called Revelation, in which he included a similar description of Jesus. 
In Revelation chapter 1, he describes Jesus' face appearing to him like the sun shining in full strength. This is the king. This is the Christ of God in all his glory. Now, glory is an interesting word, right? Glory is one of those words we say a lot in church. It's a, it's a word we say a lot in our hymns. It's a word we mention a lot in our prayers. But what is glory? That's not a simple answer to that question. So Christopher Morgan has written uh, an article on glory, and he says, glory is virtually impossible to define. Why? Because it's used in so many different ways to capture so many different facets of who our God is. And I think there's a reason why glory is hard to define and to pinpoint with a one-sentence explanation. Because glory in Scripture is such a far-reaching, big idea that's trying to embrace a far-reaching, big God. Maybe glory is virtually impossible to define because God is virtually impossible to understand completely. But there are ways to take glory and kind of understand certain aspects of what glory is. And I think the primary aspect of God's glory that Luke is getting at here in Luke 9 is the glory of God's direct presence. The, the shining forth of his awesome, holy presence. And that presence of God's glory is often portrayed and described in Scripture in terms of light. Brightness, radiance. The closer you get to God's presence, the more overwhelming this glory becomes. Think about it. Think about certain punctuation points in Scripture where we see this. So think of the famous account of Saul, the persecutor of the Christians in Acts 9, right? He's going on the way to, to imprison and execute more Christians. And what happens on the road to Antioch? Well, Jesus appears to him, right? And, and what effect does it have on Paul? It blinds him. He is blinded by a bright light. The glory of Christ appears to him in dazzling radiance. Fast forward all the way to Revelation 21. And we see a picture of the new Jerusalem, right? Where there is no need of sun or moon to shine. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. Church, this theme of God's presence as sort of dazzling glory is woven throughout Scripture and here in Luke 9 takes up its residence in the glorified body of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the presence of God. This is a glimpse into Jesus' true identity as the King, the Son of God, and the sight of Him in all this glory is enough to knock the disciples to the ground in utter terror and awe. And I think right off the bat, this picture of the glorious Christ can do some of the same things for us this afternoon. Two things I think that this vision of Christ has given me this week and perhaps will give you as well. First, in light of Jesus' bright, spotless, pure glory, we are once again confronted with our dark, corrupted, impure hearts. You know that, that old acronym Christians have used over the years to, to structure their prayers, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. There's a reason why C comes after A, 
right? There's a, there's a reason we go from adoration directly to confession. Because a glimpse of God's utter holiness, utter purity, shows us our utter lack of all those things. Because instead of giving glory to God, our natural state in our sin is to actually rob him of the glory he is due. As sinners, we are, each and every one of us, as one author puts it, glory thieves. We try to grab the worship only God deserves, only God merits, only God is worthy of. And and we try to take the focus of the attention of the world and those around us and our lives and our relationships, and we try to train everybody's attention on us. Bring me glory. Give me glory. We are glory thieves. That's the first thing we think of when we see Jesus in all his splendor. But secondly... It doesn't end here. It doesn't end with Christ's glory just revealing our sin. It doesn't end with Jesus' radiance just exposing everything dark in our hearts. I mean, just look at verse 29 and just get this big view of who Jesus is in all his glory and then skim your eyes real quick back to verse 22 we saw last week. This is the same Christ speaking. I must suffer and be rejected, and be killed. How crazy is it that this glorious king of our passage today will be the king who is nailed to a cross in just a few more chapters? How crazy is it that this glorious king pictured in Luke 9 will lay aside, has laid aside his glory, and will be crucified for glory thieves like you and me, and yet that is our Jesus. He does not leave us in our sin. He brings us to himself. We're confronted by our sin in Luke 9, and we're confronted by his mercy. Friend, the the whole point of the Christian faith is not a book of rules, not a way to behave. The whole point of being a Christian is about a person. It's about Jesus If you're tuning in this afternoon or you're here and and you understand yourself not to be a Christian, there's no reason for you to become a Christian this afternoon if you just want to get some sort of order or morality back in your life. There's no reason you should stay and listen to the rest of this sermon if you just want a bit of motivation going into work next week. Any other religion, any other self-help book, Millions of YouTube videos can do that for you just as well. Now, the whole point of being a Christian is following Christ. Following him not merely as a model or an example, but as our Savior, our substitute, the one who came to suffer and be rejected and be killed because that's what we deserved for our sin. Jesus came and I love how one author puts it where he says he's transfigured here, but he's going to be disfigured on the cross. Why? As a, as a model for us so that we can learn how to suffer well? No, as a substitute for us. See, the cross was a judgment scene. The cross was a courtroom where all the penalties for our sin were placed on Christ. And God's gavel of judgment rang loud and clear that Jesus was paying the penalty 
Jesus was bearing the divine judgment we deserved so we could escape that judgment and go free. That's why we're Christians. So friend, if you're you're not a Christian, we're so happy you're here. Uh, We really hope that you feel warmly greeted by us. But we, we pray that you would turn from your sin, that you would turn from the ways you have tried to steal God's glory for yourself, and that you'd put all your guilt and all your sin on Jesus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, if you're struggling, and every Christian struggles with this at some time or other, if you're struggling to see your sin as just as serious as it is, if you're kind of realizing you're becoming immunized to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you're just growing really good at justifying your sin by comparing it to the sins of people who are just slightly more evil than you are, there's no better place to go than to fix your eyes once again on the glorious Christ. Remember who he is. He's the brilliant radiance of God's glory. And that that sight of glory will help you see your sin more clearly and his love more wonderfully. So how do you do that? Well, you set aside time to dig into a passage like this one for yourself. You study it, you reflect on it, you meditate on it. What if you don't have the time? I think you make the time like you would for something else important in your life. I think you arrange for babysitting. You cancel a few extra events you've committed to. And you find time to focus in on the glory of the Savior, the glorious Christ. All right, well, we have a bunch more in this passage to get to, and that's in our second point, where we see Jesus as the great deliverer. So look here again at verse 30. Jesus has been transfigured. He's standing here and. on this mountain in all his spectacular glory. And in verse 30, Luke says, he's not alone. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Moses and Elijah, why are they there? Well, Moses and Elijah, for any self-respecting Jew, were household names. Both had huge roles in the Old Testament and in the history of Israel. Both had prophet roles, prophetic roles. Moses had given the law. Elijah was was thought of as someone who would come again when Jesus was, or when the Messiah would come and the ultimate salvation of God's people. And so both have seen God's glory in spectacular ways in their lives, and here they both appear in glory with Jesus. Why? They're witnessing to his glory. These two giants of Israel's history are standing next to the giant, the holy one, the prophet of God above all others, and they're bearing witness to him as the greater one. And what's their conversation about? Luke says they speak, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, in order to get the full weight of that statement, let me quickly remind us of the number one event in the history of Israel. 
So Israel has had a long and checkered history throughout the Old Testament, but the one event they can always look back to, the one event they rejoice in and remember together as a people above all others, the one event that defines them is what? It's the, it's the exodus, their escape from Egypt. It's when the, the plagues finally broke Pharaoh and led to the deliverance from bondage for the Jews. It's when they passed through the Red Sea and God worked these phenomenal wonders by simultaneously freeing his people and consuming his enemies. The Exodus was the single best thing that had ever happened to Israel. It had formed them as a nation. It had delivered them from their enemies. It had set them free. Now back to Luke 9. This passage, as you might know, was originally written in the Greek language by Luke. And in the Greek language, the word used there for departure is significant. And so starting in verse 30, we read, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish or fulfill in Jerusalem. That's the word Luke wrote. He wrote of Jesus' exodus. See, Luke is showing how Jesus is bringing a new greatest moment in the history of God's people. A new greatest moment in the history of the world. He's coming to deliver his people not merely from bondage to Egypt, but bondage to sin. He's not merely leading them out of slavery to an oppressive regime, but out of slavery to their rebellion against God. There's so much imagery throughout this passage connecting over and over again to the Old Testament. Why? Because Luke is showing us how everything before is now coming to be fulfilled. Everything is coming to a head in Jesus. He's the greater Moses bringing a greater exodus. As a sports fan, I love conversations about who's the greatest And people argue and make tons of money on screen arguing about who's the greatest. Jordan or LeBron, Brady or Manning, Messi or Ronaldo. I have no clue about those two. I just put it in there for those of you who do. Who's the best of all time in their sports? And as great as these athletes have been and continue to be in some ways, the possibility always has to be raised in these conversations how someone may come along in 2025 or 2035 who will be even greater. So far ahead that they will obviously be the goatest of all goats. And church, that conversation may be great fun on ESPN. That conversation will never happen again in the history of God's redemption for his people. Because the greatest has come. All history has been leading up to the Christ. And here he is, the greater Moses, bringing about a greater exodus. Can't get any better. You can't get any better, and Moses and Elijah are bearing witness to that fact. You can't get any better. We're pretty great. You can't get any better than him. What is Jesus' exodus? It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. And it will be, finally, his return. That will be the greatest exodus And this time, it it won't lead to the setting up of one single nation. 
but the creation of one church from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all redeemed by the sacrifice of the great deliverer. And so all of this is, is happening. All of this is swirling about on top of the mountain. And in verse 32, it's time for Peter to wake up. We see there in verse 32, the Peter and James and John, they start to become aware, foggy at first, but then they start to become aware of what's happening. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I love how Luke words that verse. Because you'd think that if Peter is going to have a glimpse of Jesus in all his glory, if he's going to kind of have this, this picture of Jesus with his face shining, well, that might be kind of in a, in a somewhat subconscious state, right? We see that elsewhere in the Bible. We see visions. We see Ezekiel. We see John in Revelation. Maybe this would be kind of the same thing because Jesus is so bright and this is so unique. Maybe it's a vision or a trance or something like that. But I love how Luke emphasizes the fact that the more awake Peter becomes, the more real Jesus' glory appears. This ain't a dream. It's not fiction. It's real life. And it's also interesting that throughout Luke, the disciples are pictured as steadily increasing in their understanding of Jesus. And it's not until after his resurrection and the ascension and then Pentecost that the final pieces of the puzzle start to find their place. And so I think this, this verse kind of reminds us of the trajectory of Luke for the disciples as a whole. Luke is a story of the disciples slowly becoming fully awake to who Jesus really is. And so here, Peter wakes up. Can you imagine waking up to this? I mean, just moments before you were sleeping, it was quiet. The birds were chirping or whatever they do. It, it, it was, might have been nighttime, people speculate. Jesus is praying. He does that for hours. We'll let him do that. We're tired. He wakes up and sees this. Verse 33. And he has a suggestion for what he sees. And as the men, that's Elijah and Moses, were parting from him, that's Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, scholars debate what exactly is going on here. It, is, is Peter making a, a kind of out-of-turn, wacky comment? Maybe. But I think a, perhaps a better way of understanding Peter's comment is that he's saying something earnestly of which he doesn't fully understand the truth of yet. Does that make sense? So he's saying something that's true, and yet he's not understanding just how true it is. So what's he saying? What's this true thing he's saying? Well, there are different views on that as well. Uh, some people think Peter is recommending an observance here of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. This was a feast the Israelites would, would celebrate to remember God's provision for them when they were going through the wilderness, and then to look forward to his provision and salvation for them in the future. But the view I think, and I, I lean towards, is that Peter sees all this glory, and his mind goes to the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, depending on where you're reading. This structure that howls the glory of God, this meeting place for God and his people where his glory would be kept in 
so as not to destroy his people, and yet they could approach by means of sacrifice and the priesthood. If you were here a couple years ago when we went through Exodus, some of these things will ring a bell. And I think this idea of the tabernacle is reinforced in the next verse, verse 34. Because as Peter is speaking, Luke says that a cloud came and overshadowed them. And that they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So that that all sounds a lot like what Eli read for us at the start of our service from the very end of Exodus, doesn't it? So Moses in Exodus has met with God on a mountain. He's seen God's glory. And then God has given him this blueprint to come down from the mountain and build a tabernacle so he can dwell with his people. And then at the very end of Exodus, when we've read, you know, chapters upon chapters of this piece fits into this piece and this room goes here and this goes here and everything is put together for the tabernacle that will house the dwelling place of God, what happens? The cloud of God's presence that guided his people through the wilderness comes and descends on the tabernacle and it's filled with glory. So if you have your Bible, turn with me real quick back to Exodus, where Eli read for us earlier. Exodus, the second book in the Bible, very final verses in chapter 40. Exodus 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's Exodus 40. But now here in Luke 9, the glory of the Lord again is pictured as a cloud descending, but this time not descending on a tent, not descending on a tabernacle, but descending on a person. Jesus is now the tabernacle. As the scholar James Edwards puts it, Jesus is the tabernacle of God, the incarnation of God's glory. Where do you go to see God's glory? You see it in Christ. You go where the glory of God is made incarnate, where the glory of God takes on flesh, and that's Jesus. And Jesus resides all the power, all the splendor and brightness and light of God himself. And so the story of the Exodus is happening all over again. But this time, the Deliverer himself is filled with the glory of God. The Apostle John, who witnessed this transfiguration, would later pen the Gospel of John and say, the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The word there means tabernacled among us. Jesus is the meeting place of God and man. Jesus is the dwelling of God on earth. Jesus is the embodiment of all the glory of the creator of the universe. And yet, all of this is put in the context of Jesus as the sufferer. The one who has come not to have sacrifices brought to him, but to lay down his life as a final sacrifice for us. This story is still not done. Look at verse 35. And a voice came out of the clouds saying, 
This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the voice of God comes out and he confirms the identity of his Messiah, much like he had back at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. And he goes on and he calls him his chosen one. You're going to see this, this passage continues to just keep on giving Old Testament imagery over and over again. So in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we see this figure of God's servant, right? One who will come and deliver, and yet Isaiah 53 also suffer and be stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his people. And in Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says of this special servant to come, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Jesus is the servant of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is going to be the one to come and suffer and yet bring salvation to God's people. But Luke is still not done. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's the servant of Isaiah. He's the promised king. But he has one more Old Testament allusion. See, back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is speaking to Israel. And he says... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And what's the final command? What's the final exhortation from God the Father to Peter, James, and John, and to us in light of who Jesus is in this, in this passage? Luke 9.35, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. We see here, church, the prophet. The prophet Moses had prophesied would come. We see here the greater Moses leading a greater exodus. We see here the Messiah. We see here Christ. He's the true prophet. Not only does he bring God's word to his people, he is God's word to his people. He is the final exclamation point of all God's revelation of himself. He is the glory of God incarnate. And so no wonder Luke ends this amazing account in verse 36 with stunned silence. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I love how he says, in those days. Because after those days, after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, man, these men are going to share boldly and widely who Jesus is, what they saw on the mountain. But for now, they're silent. And so I think as we kind of get our heads around this passage, it just keeps on giving. I think the best way to apply this to our lives is to take the command of God the Father speaking from the cloud for us. Because if Jesus is this great prophet, if Jesus is this great deliverer, we must heed God's command. We must listen to him. He has brought God's truth in himself. His words are the very words of God. I mean, think about it. A week earlier, Peter had rebuked Jesus for his words, right? Jesus has said, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and I've come to suffer. And Peter said, may it never be. Stop talking like that. And now, a week later, God's command is clear. No, Peter, 
listen to him. So Christian, are you listening to Jesus? I'm not talking about a still small voice. I'm not talking about your conscience. Jesus' words are clearly written down in this book for you to read and hear whenever you want. But the question is, are you listening to them? I wonder where might the word of Christ be speaking to you today and you're choosing to ignore it? I wonder where you might be trying to cover your ears and go la, 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 lest you hear the Bible and need to change your life in accordance with it. Christian, Jesus' words bring life because they come from the life giver himself, the one who laid down his life for you. Listen to him. One author has written on this passage, Jesus is the revelation of God. We can and we should have great confidence that everything that God wants to say to us is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Like the disciples will say later, Lord, to whom else should we go? You have the words of life. Church, there's nowhere else to go like Jesus. Listen to him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for so often stopping up our ears or cranking up the volume of the world so that we cannot hear your voice. Forgive us for buying into the lie that if we listen to you, we're going to lose our joy, we're going to lose our freedom and our happiness in this life when the opposite is true, when you're holding out to us complete contentment and fulfillment and joy. And so help us to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, in your holy word. And help us to obey. For you are our beautiful Savior, glorious in holiness, the Lord of history. We will listen. Amen.